Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 31 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Barry Cowan. Barry Cowan, famously known for his unbelievable five-set match back in 2001 with Pete Sampras and has gone on to our screens as a commentator for the last 19 years with Sky Sports and now Amazon Prime. Barry brings so much to this podcast. He, he, he speaks first and foremost very honestly. Uh, he, gives, he gives his opinions on, on lots of important matters within, within the sport of tennis. Uh, he's been through the levels. He's been close to all the levels. He's very grounded. Uh, once again, we're blown away by by these fantastic guests and and the learning that that is coming out of them each time. So please sit back wherever you are, if you're driving to work, if you're listening in the house, and enjoy Barry Cowan. Barry Cowan, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast, Control the Controllables. A big, big thank you from Dan and myself for coming on tonight. Uh, it's nice to join you guys, and, and the sun's shining. I'm, I missed it all last week, being in Roehampton with the, the 30 degrees plus, um, but thankfully the sun's out now and, and the rain has disappeared for the last day. Sounds great. Um, I mean, it's not doing that here in Ireland. It's absolutely lashing rain on us, Barry, so we're having a shocker, but nothing new here. Um, just Good for the listeners... That weather. Listen- <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. But uh, just for the listeners that are listening, Barry, want to give a, sh- a small profile of yourself. Um, you've had a, a you know a, a fabulous career um, it, w- with your tennis life, a career high of 162 in the world in singles and 132 in the world in doubles. In your early days, you were a member of the LTA British Rover School at Bisham Abbey. Uh, you competed at Davis Cup for Great Britain in 2001 versus Ecuador, and you're really well known for your phenomenal match against Pete Sampras, where you took him to five sets in Wimbledon. And you also commented on Amazon Prime, which where we watched you last week on Battle of the Brits. Once again, a big, big thank you, Barry, for coming on tonight. It's just nice to join you guys. I've been listening to quite a few of your podcasts in recent weeks. Uh, I, I thought the, the Dan Evans one was absolutely brilliant. And I would, I would advise any younger players, or to be honest, parents and coaches to actually listen to it because it was such a candid interview, such an honest interview. And the, and the one thing that I, you know, having been around the game as you guys have been as a player, as a pundit, commentating and also doing some coaching, the one thing that, that I think you have to be is honest as players. And Dan, Dan was totally honest and, and hopefully I can be as honest as possible this evening. Barry, it's Danny. I couldn't agree any more. It was, it was in a little story, a quick story on the Dan Evans one, actually. We did a one six weeks earlier with the academy players. And, and I said, look, Dan, do you, do you mind me turning that into a podcast? And he actually turned around and said, not at all, Dan, not at all, but send it to me first. And I, and I sent it to him and he, and he turned around to me and he said, look, 
that's not good enough. I can do better than that. He said, so mm. give, me, give me a call tomorrow. Um, and, we, and we gave him a call, you know, spoke for an hour and a half. And he, he was so candid in how he spoke, um, which, was, which was brilliant. And it's like John said, it's fantastic having you with us, Barry. And at my, my first thing, it, it must be a while since you've been on the other side. This is normally you, you handing out the interview. So how, how does that feel? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's nice actually. You don't you don't have to think about the questions. You just have to react with the with the answers. Um, I mean, I, I I think these podcasts are great, and anytime you can hear from different people's experiences, because certainly what I what I tennis is our life, right? It's been my life. It's been my life. It's been you guys' life, your guys' lives for for years. And when I first started playing when I was six, so that's thirty nine years. And, and all I want to do is to be able to pass my experiences yep. on to other people to make them better. And, and, and that's how we improve, right? I mean, that's, if you look, at, you look at the 100 meters, it's a lot quicker now than it was 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, because everyone's improved, everyone involves, look at football, how much better they are now. Yep. And, and that's ultimately what you want. And, and you know, my experiences, um, everyone else experiences you, you want people to learn from that and 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 people learn from from experiences you get better and before before we go into tennis too much tennis it's only a few days since your beloved liverpool won the won the premier league title so we we have to get you we have to get your thoughts on that as well barry you've waited 30 years Yes, uh, it's been 30 long years and, you know, I, I actually remember, I remember uh, back in 1990 when, when they won it for the last time. I also remember when Dagleach resigned, I was actually in South America and it was amazingly, back in those days, we had no internet, right? Yeah. So I'm away for 10 weeks. It was only after, I think, about the sixth or seventh week when I phoned home for the first time that I found out that Dagleach had resigned, I think, maybe two or three weeks before. Yeah. But, you know, the hardest part in my job is keeping your discipline. Yeah. And sometimes I don't always keep my discipline. So a couple of times last week, I, you know, I had to say that we, we'd won the league. But I, I do remember, do you, do you remember the last time we were, gonna, we were potentially going to win it? Um, not last year because City were, were, um, Man City were unbelievable, but the year of the slip, the yeah. Gerrard slip. <laughs> and no, on Monday it. night, we were, do you, you remember? I mean, yeah, thank Hopefully no fans will be singing that song anymore. But the night, the Monday night, the Crystal Palace game, I was on air. I was commentating on a match. And I was just about to go start commentating. We were 3-0 up. And then if, if you've got the director in your ear, they, they, you know, every now and again, they'll give you the score. And then it was 3-1, 3 3-0. <laughs> and when you're trying to react to the tennis and you've got that in your ear, You've got, you've got to obviously remain disciplined. But yeah, thankfully, we finally, finally did. I mean, what an amazing achievement and what an incredible team. And how I would have loved to have had Jurgen Klopp as a tennis coach. He would just be unbelievable because he can inspire anyone. To pick, to pick up on the Jurgen Klopp thing, I, I completely agree, actually, Barry. And I know you're talking about how the, the game is developing all the time. People are sharing their experiences how much do you think we can take from other sports, you know, and, and a tennis coach learning from a football coach like that? I think very much so. Uh, you know, the late than the latest things is, you know, they've hired a throwing coach. I mean, could you imagine a foot? Could you imagine a football club hiring a throwing coach fifteen years ago? I mean, they would have been laughed at. 
you remember, you know, when, when Glenn Hoddle started to use a sports psychologist? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there, there was sports psychologists. What do you need a sports psychologist for? Yeah. And now it's a given, you know, it's almost frowned upon if an athlete doesn't use yeah. a, a sports psychologist. So, so really, when you've got, when you've got the elite, and then this is where I think it'd be good to talk about, you've got the elite. We yeah. talk about, the, I mean, the buzz, buzz words in elite sport do 100 things 1% better. Yeah. So if you're talking, if we then take you back to tennis and you're talking about Andy Murray or Djokovic or Serena Williams, you know, the, the real superstar sport, that is very relevant. Yeah. But if you're talking about a 14, 15 year old, yeah. I wouldn't want them to get caught up in doing this 100 things 1% better. Yes. You know, they just need to, the ages period, they need to be disciplined. Yeah. You know, so don't necessarily, I'm not hung up on a younger age about, they've got to have the right diet and they've got to make sure they have the right pillow to sleep on. If yeah. you can't hit, if you can't hit 20 backhands in a row cross court or 24 hands in a row cross court and you can't concentrate for an hour, it doesn't matter about trying to do the, the little things a little bit better. No, I think absolutely. I, I completely agree. And it's, it's actually something I wanted to touch on a bit later, but it's, it's, I think it, it makes sense to talk about it there. Now it's, it's obviously all the data that's coming in and you know, we had Craig O'Shaughnessy on the, on the show who he was fantastic and, you know, spoke very well, you know, certainly at the Academy, it's something we've looked a lot into. And, and I guess my opinion on that very much is it's about interpretation. It's about yeah. knowing your player it's about knowing if it's relevant for, for the age. How, how, how do you feel that data has impacted the game? And obviously you're very close to it in the position that you're in. I, in my job as commented, I like to use data. Yeah. And I think that when you, when you, you know, if you watch or you look up the, all the stats online, um, if, you, if you speak, to, I speak to Craig, I think he's very good. He's very smart. But it's to confirm what you believe. Yeah. I think what you don't want to do because there's, there's always a there's always a, a can be a reason behind some stats. Um, but I think generally, you know, I mean, I worked on the basis. My best my best shot, best part of my game was my serve. Yeah. So, for instance, I needed to serve. I kind of needed to serve 60% first serves in. Yeah. I kind of needed to get 80% plus first serves in, and I needed to get. Sorry, I needed to win 80% of my first serve points yep. and I needed to win north of 50 my second serve points won. Yep. If I was being broken twice in a set, I was in trouble. Yep. I would not win the set, you know, unless, unless it was one of those days where I, I was returning unbelievable. So anytime that I could go through a set not losing serve, yep. that for me was a real positive. And so I think you have to use the stats to, to how your game is um you know there's no there's no point someone like a let's say no point someone like you know returner you know make making too much emphasis on um you know getting away from from the return stats or getting away from their service stats you know you've got to you've got to be very specific yeah no we i i call it the the 105 percent rule at the academy you know and if you look at any any level of tennis you've got your 100% service games and your 100% mm. of return games. And to be successful at any level, you need to win, your, win 105% of that 200. And, yeah. you know, so if you look at John Isner last year, he was 96 and nine. Mm. <laughs> you know, if you look at Dan Evans, he's like 78 and 
30 or 28, you know, and it's, I, I think, understanding the game identity linking into that. And, and just to share a quick story, actually, Josh, Josh Ward-Hibbert, who you know, Barry, when I was working with Josh, I was, I was taking his stats on that and I was told, you've got to sort his backhand return out. His backhand return is terrible, everyone told me. So I, so I did the stats over the, over the course of, let's say, six, eight months. And in that six or eight months, he'd won 96% of the 200% of games. And 23% were bricks. Yeah. Only 73 were holds. Yeah. And, and, and actually, if you go look at the big servers in the game, they're all up towards 90 mm. at, at, at any level. So actually, that informed me that he needed to learn how to hold serve. And even though he could serve 135 mile an hour, I, I had to get, the, get to the layers of why wasn't he holding serve. And mm. I think that would be a really nice example of how it's used. But just to touch on what you touched on there, Barry, not to call you an old fart, but you got a few years on me. Did, were you able to get those stats back in the day? So I used to do them myself. Okay. Uh, in the end, I used to go to uh, the referee's office after matches and I used to pick up the scorecard. So that, this was before online scoring. I used yep. to pick up the scorecard and I used to go through it. And, and for me, that, I liked that because that was reassurance in my mind. I knew, I knew what I needed to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and some people might say, but the, did that stress you out? No, it didn't stress me out. I, I didn't go in thinking, um, well, if, you know, if I serve, if I serve 50%, I'm not going to win the match. You've got to deal with it on the day. But it, 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 it's about working on, you know, and it's something that I learned, actually, I would say probably a little bit too late in my career. But Brent Larkin, who used to coach Wayne Arthurs, Brent was a very good player and a, and a very, very good coach. And, and Wayne Arthurs, who had one of the best serves in the game, if you look at, if you look at the ATP stats, he is right up there, the top 10. And their focus was making his best shot better. Yeah. And it's always an interesting one as well, Dan and John. It's, you know, what you work on, do you work on your weakness, improving your weakness, yeah. or do you work on improving your strength? Now, what wins tennis matches is your strength. Yeah. You've, got to be able, you've got to be able to hurt your players. You know, we, if, if we talk about the, the, the top guys, straight away, we talk about what they do well. Yeah. We don't talk about their, their sort of weaknesses of the game. It's all focused on, and that's what, if you get into someone's head as an opponent, it's because of what you do well. And, and I think that for me is always a thing that you try and be positive on, on younger players. It's about focusing on your best asset, your what what you really do well, and making that better because also it gives them boosting confidence, doesn't it? If yeah. you're forever reminding your 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 uh, oh by the way your backhand's rubbish, yeah. then they're going to get in their head that backhand's rubbish. But if you keep telling them your forehand's amazing and you're the best athlete, you're you're a great athlete, and we're going to try and make you the best athlete, yeah. then they're going to feel you know they're going to feel a lot taller when they get on the court. No, 100%. And on, on that as well, Barry, last week or, or a couple of days ago, Battle of the Brits, you know, mm. we got those insights, you know, and I thought it was fascinating to, to hear Andy yesterday, actually in the third and fourth playoff, talking to James Ward about his energy and his intensity, which is obviously something that's very much in his mind. 
Um, but I also thought it was fascinating just hearing the way that the coaches spoke and how how simple they did keep that, you know, and those those messages are so so simple in the heat of the moment. That's what it'll come it will come down to. You know, if we take the Evo against Andy um semi-final, seven six, and I spoke to Hilt afterwards, I thought Evo missed a forehand at seven six wide, but he played with the absolute right intention. And in some ways, that shot actually won him the match because it showed that he was mm-hmm. going to be willing to do that. And then he, he had the 9-8 backhand that Oki didn't hit it cleanly, but he, but he kept the same intention. How, how do you think that was for the game, getting that insight into listening to the players' talk, listening to the coaches' talk? And do you see that in the future of the game? I absolutely loved it. Uh, and, you know, hats off to all the players around. Hats off to Jamie Murray and what an amazing effort to be tournament director with that with those stresses amazing. and still to be able to play. Um, yeah. I, I thought everyone covered themselves in glory. The LTA, you know, bearing in mind what happened the week before in Croatia, that shambles really um, all round the shambles. Um, you know, I was asked a few times about it, and yes, Djokovic didn't help himself, but I think a lot of other people actually are also. Equally to equally to blame as as Novak, but going back to last week, um, I thought it was a great insight. And I, having been in my role in the media guys, and having done it at the O2 of the pre-match player interviews, they are a waste of time. Yeah. I don't media don't like doing them. I, the players certainly don't like doing them. And I've always wondered why why don't we? Sometimes tennis is. Tennis is a little stuck in the in it, in its dark ages. Yeah. Why 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 aren't we hearing from the coach before the match? You know the coach. Yeah. What's the message? You know what message did you? How's your player? What what message did you give your player? Um, and then one interview during the match. Um, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's gold dust. Yeah. And last week, I think we, as you uh, rightly said, I hundred percent agree. I thought the, the coaches were 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 spot on. Very simple messages. I personally, as much as I'd love to hear from the players during matches, in reality, it's not going to happen. Um, yeah. As nice as it was last week, players are not going to agree. Um, but I think coaches, you know, part of the deal, the coach, you know, if you're coaching a player and you're getting accreditation at the tournament, and when you think how much money um, the, the game makes from TV, yeah. I think a, player, a coach has to do two interviews. He has to do one before the match, and one join a match, join a change events. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Barry. I mean, I, I was uh, stuck on Amazon Prime all week looking uh, at that um, at that event, and I thought it was really, really well done. And like you said, amazing what Jamie did, you know, playing in it, running it. I mean, the stresses of running an event like that must be, you know, serious. And I, I thought it was a phenomenal format, the way it was ran. I know Patrick Martagalou is doing his own thing over in France at the moment, but... I have to say I've been watching both, but I, and I'm not being biased here at all. But I, I really prefer the way that event was ran at the Battle of Brits. It felt yeah. way more just like tennis as opposed to you know the way they're trying to run it there. I suppose in France, but the, the, the coaches. I thought it was great to listen to the coaches and you know to to hear their what they were saying to the players. You know at the change of ends and to get their feelings before and after the matches. The coaches that are involved there have obviously done a really great job. Um, and I suppose I'm kind of getting a little bit drifting away from the actual Battle of the Brits. But 
British tennis has done really, really well, I think, over the past you know, decade with players emerging into the top 100 on both the men's and the ladies' side. And obviously these coaches have had a big role to play in it. Um, what do you think is the big things that have changed since your playing uh, days with these players emerging into, or more players emerging coming into the top 100 in the world from, from Great Britain? I know we've had Tim and Greg and things like that in the past, but there's more people and more players coming through that. Yeah, I think if we, if we focus on the men, because that's obviously, I'm more familiar with the, the men's game than the women's game. Actually, actually, if we go back to the women's game first, do you remember around the time we had um, the late uh, Lena Baltasha? We had, yeah, yeah. we had Mel South, we had Katie O'Brien. So there you had four, four female players all pushing each other. And then when Tim and Greg were my era, but Tim and Greg were world-class players. Yeah. Then, then in, in my little group, we were, all we were all traveling together. It was myself, Marty Lee, Jamie Delgado, Arvin Palmer, and we had one coach, David Samuel, and we had Jez Green, the physical trainer, who at the time, he's had a serious upgrade since he, he worked with us, yeah. <laughs> going from Andy and, and obviously, uh, bit with Burdick and now he's with, with Zverev. An unbelievable trainer. And, and I was interested to hear what Dan was saying. And Dan Evans a couple of weeks ago, and he said, I don't, I don't believe there should be the, the players uh, with, you know, with one coach, one player, one coach. And what we had was a very healthy rivalry. I mean, we all get on. We all get on now. We're all mates. Um, but we're all pushing each other. And if you look at the game now, and for me, this is what really came out this week, was they talked about the banter, but there's a real competitive edge. And, and obviously, Evo, Evo is, is at the top of that because Andy, is, he's, the, he's the world-class player. But I don't think we should underestimate how an important role, role model he's been. Because it's very easy at times to when, you've, when you are, have been a world number one and you've won majors, is to, to, to say, well, actually, a player of 200, ah, they're not very good. You know, 100, they're not very good. And actually, you know, I don't really want to help those guys. But I think Murray has been integral part in that, that he's given back to help those younger players. I mean, I mean, I don't, he, I mean he probably spends more time watching challenges and futures than he probably does watching on the main tour. I mean, he, his knowledge is incredible of the British game. And that helps. And yeah. you, we got is you've so you got you got obviously Tim and Greg who helped Andy, and now you've got Andy who's helping the younger generation. Um, you know, as such of, of Evo because he's obviously younger, Kyle, etc., etc. And now you got you can throw in the mix of Jack Draper. I mean, how much you know that was a shame that he didn't play last week, but how much how huge it's going to be for Jack Draper, yeah. um, Paul Job, who's got the same management company as Murray, to, to be able to feed off. Um, you know, the very top guys, because if they see what Evo's done or they see what Kyle's done or they've been able to see what uh, Norrie has done, then that's easier for them to make that transition. My only wish is that we had a bigger base. Uh, you know, that, you know the, 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 the bottom of the pyramid is far too small. Um, yeah. But, you know, listen, I, it doesn't matter how, how many times over the years that, that that's been a little bit of my frustration. Um, you know, the LTA obviously have gone in in a, in a certain direction. But I think if you, the more players you have competing, the more chance you have of 
uh, more players making that transition from juniors to seniors. I think it's, it's too thin in British tennis of, of those very good junior players trying to make the professional game. The competition structure, uh, well, I suppose I know uh, just my own experience of when I was playing a, a, a bit of tennis after, you know, I remember there was a lot of competition, like a lot of futures, a lot of challengers. I remember the likes of Dan growing up through those competitions uh, in his own own development. Is is that the same now as it was, let's say, you know, 15, 20 years ago? Is there as many events, competitions in the UK as there was? Um, and do you think that will have an effect for the future? Well, I hope that everyone could see last week how great the Battle, battle of the Brits was. And, and I think it's a crying shame that we don't have senior nationals. I think you've got to have a senior nationals. You've got to have junior nationals that mean something. I don't think junior players should be ducking out of the junior nationals. Because, as you know, Kino, if you're, if, you're, if you're copping out of competition at age 16, you've got no chance six years later because it only gets worse. You've got to address the issue. I think it should almost be compulsory that every, every junior player in Britain has to play the junior nationals. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think if you did have the, the, the senior national championships back, I think that would be a huge advantage. Um, I mean, I, would, I benefited massively from the British tour because the British tour came in when I was um, just coming out of juniors. And, and I remember I got, I got some huge cuffings from older, older experienced players. You know, I, I played a couple of times and I lost love and one. And in love and one, you're losing to a, a 27, 28 year old. I mean, at the time it was Danny Sapsford, Nick Forward. And you're trying to make, you're trying to be serious about trying to be a pro player and you're off love and one on the British tour. I don't think it's actually, I don't think, I don't think it mean, makes any sense. To think if you lose love and one in Sheffield in a British tour that you're going to be able to go to a satellite in in Spain and and pick up enough points to improve your ranking. So I think if you're if you're not good enough at that age, play loads of money tournaments or go to American University. I think those are the two options. Very good, Barry. And and a couple of points I just want to want to pick up on. One, do you think during this pandemic that this might actually bring a more localised tournament structure. And, and that, that would be my first question. I'll leave that with you for, to start. I would hope so. I think the, the wealthy nations have a huge advantage. I mean, I, I actually would be a big advocate. I don't think we necessarily need loads of tournaments. Yeah. I actually think money tournaments are far, are far more important. Uh, and I remember sort of going back to my times when I was fortunate that about, about a decade ago, I was on one of the boards at the LTA, on one of the pro boards. And it was, it was suggested and, and that I, I felt it would be a great idea to call it a, a, a tier two British tour. And the tier two British tour or tier three British tour is a localized, localized British tour. Money tools. They used to have it. Do you remember the VW ratings? The, I think it was called the Perno ratings originally. Okay. And, and where you don't have to travel. So, you know, in, in every area, every weekend, you've got, you've got money tournaments. And what that brings is hopefully it means coaches are going to play. Because if a coach can earn potentially £400 by playing two matches over a weekend, they're going to want to do that instead of, churning out another 15 hours or, or how many hours it's going to be to, to earn that money. So they're keeping a good level. It also encourages 
older players to play. And, and by having the older players play, do you need to play against older players? I mean, I, I scratch my head at times. I don't particularly like juniors only playing against juniors their own age. Yeah. What, what happens is they all play the same way. Yeah. They all, they all you know, generally juniors, if you go to, you go to you know, Junior Grand Slam, for example, and you, you, you take a cross-section about the, the, the boys and girls, they generally play a very similar way. They look to hit, hit, hit pretty big serves, be aggressive from the back and use their forehand. Well, if you go to junior tournaments at 14, they generally are also looking to play the same way. But if you've got a, a 55-year-old who's just been working the whole week and they come out and they slice and dice it, what, what do we all hate playing when we're young? Yeah. We hate playing those players that play a little bit different. So that's why I think the big advantage of sort of money tournaments like that, that it, it would encourage more of a, a local a local uh, tournament structure. And hey, do you know what? Do you know the boost of that? Parents don't have to travel at yeah. the weekend to take, to take their son Johnny or, or their, the, um, you know, up to you know, 200 miles to go and play a tournament. I love that point, Barry. And, and in terms of the coaches as well, and I always think back to kind of like French league, and I'm sure you played French league, German league. And I remember turning up to my French league matches and there was like, 16 people practicing like on a Friday afternoon and I was like who are these guys you know all shapes and sizes but they were all getting ready they were all getting ready for their weekend matches you know mm. and the better ones getting ready to to make some money from the money tournaments the maybe the coaches were getting ready not to embarrass themselves in front of 100 people that were going to watch on the Saturday and and, and it brings me on to a, a separate point we started an online online course different online courses. And what we found when you're looking for loyal followers who are going to kind of purchase something from you, the most loyal followers follow their coach. <laughs> so, 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 so when you're coming up, you are inspired and you do look up to your coach in lots of ways and having the opportunity to compete against them, having the opportunity to watch them compete and, and just having that whole structure, it just keeps the whole, I guess, tennis ecosystem moving. I, I hope all of this movement and the Battle of the Brits and Barry Fulch with the Progress Tour event, I know the girls start that in a few weeks. They see, there's some highly motivated people that are making some nice moves. And hey, we might even get our bats out, Barry, you know, come back and have a little go at the, the dream of the UK Nationals at Telford, if it could be there again, you know. Travelling to playing a lot of ITF tournaments around the world. What is your opinion on that? Do you like? Do you think it's important for them to travel? Um, I know. I think one of the comments you might have made was that it's maybe not so important to play Grand Slam junior level. I think maybe that might have been one of the things. But do you think it's important for a junior tennis player to play a lot of ITF events or not? What's your What's your stake on that? So uh, yeah, I, I mentioned that last week, and junior tournaments are important because you need to pit you need to put your level against European and world standards. So if we're talking about an elite junior, so if you're age 14 and you are one of the best, yes, go and play Orange Bowl, go and play European Championships, go and play the team competitions. And if you're, if you're age 18, go and play the Grand Slams or, or 16, you know, even better, if you're good enough at 16, go and play the Grand Slam. Where I strongly disagree with the tournament structure the junior structure, the tennis Europe under 14s, it's under 16s and under 18s, is being a professional player, 
I think you have a 10 year lifespan in my level. If you're talking about the, the top players, it's different because you're, you're traveling five star. If you're playing in front of crowds and you're getting financial rewards for it, you're going to be more motivated. But when you're, when you're stuck at my level, which I was, playing a lot of satellites, playing a lot of challenges, when you, you know, most of the challenges you're playing in front of two men in the dock. I mean, you know, I've played numerous matches where I've had more people on the court than I've had watching in the stands because, you know, you were the Lions people and the umpire. That I think you have, a, you have a lifespan. Now, my theory on it is if you're traveling to play junior tournaments at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, that's four or five years of traveling that, that is physically draining when all you're trying to do is, be, is, increase your, is improve your ranking. That makes no sense to me. I just look at it logically. It makes no sense. Why, why would you want to, 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 to bust a gut to go and play junior tournaments to improve your ranking to get into a Grand Slam and to say you're 50 in the world or 60 in the world or 70 in the world? That, to me, is, is, is not the right way to go. I went to South America for 10 weeks. That was the first trip. So you can imagine an English kid who had been, as you said, the National Tennis School for, at that time, I think it was three years, goes to South America. It was a huge learning curve. I mean, it was just the best thing I've ever done. I came back from that trip and I asked myself the question, do I want to be a pro player? Is this what I really want? I've always wanted to be a player, tennis player. From the age of six, I wanted to be a tennis player. Is this what I really want to do? Because if it is, I'm going to have to go to some places that are not five-star. I'm going to have to be hooked. I'm going to be, have to be tough. I'm going to have to get beaten. You know, I'm going to lose maybe four or five weeks in a row. I'm going to be away from home. And, and I came back and my, my answer was, yes, that's what I want. So I was, you know, I, that was the decision I made. I had to sign up to that. So there was no point grumbling if I, you know, I went away for 12 weeks one year when I really made an improvement. Went to India, went to Bangladesh, went to Pakistan. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the stuff that I saw there over that 12-week period was, was incredible. But there was no point moaning about it. I wanted to be a tennis player. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't have changed the world what I wanted to do. Um, so, you know, that experience was great. However, my, the reason for me going to South America was not because I wanted to improve my ranking, not because I was trying to get into the next tournament. It was not because I was trying to make the U.S. Open etc etc it was because that was the start of my development and i think sometimes we we we've fallen into the trap of of it's too short term and and the hardest part is for any coach with working with a player and also trying to get through to a parent is yes you want to win the next match because tennis is about competing right you've got to be competitive but also you're about how's your game going to going to be in four, five, six years. Now, if you're on the treadmill, and I call it the treadmill, if you're on the treadmill, 14, 15, I think you lose those important years when really you should be developing your game. Very, so well put, Barry. Uh, you should be a commentator, mate. I tell you what, the way that you, way you put that. But you know, no, seriously, and, and I think just for our listeners to, to kind of frame that a little bit in terms of, in terms of what you've said and, and a big takeaway that I take from that, you have to know whether you love the grind in this mm -hmm. sport. It, it, it's at some point, 
at some mm. point you have to find out you know because like you said unless you are a superstar who is kind of getting five star from pretty early on you yeah. know and and Andy I'm sure Andy wouldn't mind us saying he probably didn't grind that much you know he got wild card into a, in a tour event when he was 16 17 was winning matches you know went through went through the levels pretty fast and and your Novaks and your you know your Rogers and these sort of guys if not your only way through is to to put the weeks in to put the hours in to go to these far away places to like you like you said not live five star and I think it's it's such an important message for mm. people because so many people out there like the idea of being a professional tennis player but they're not exactly ready to do what it really takes to be to be a professional tennis player and to hear that from you I think is incredibly well put um Thanks, Barry, for that. To pull you, pull you back a little bit, we've fallen into some great discussion. I do want to just pull you way back and not necessarily get caught up in it, but how does a lad from Liverpool back in the, the 70s yeah. get, get into tennis over football? How did that happen? Well, yeah, so and my, both parents played. So I, I was really fortunate that my my parents come from a sporting background. They love playing sport. No, they weren't. They weren't county. They weren't county tennis players. But my dad played a lot of hockey. Um, my mum played a lot of tennis, a lot of you know golf, and I had an older brother, three years older. And naturally, it was be right for my brother to play tennis. Um, but back then, uh, I was too young, age six. I was too young to play tennis because the tennis club that I was a member at, um, Orton Lawn Tennis Club, which is sort of north of Liverpool, about half an hour north. Um, and, and I wasn't allowed to play because I was too young. And, and I guess it's probably a little bit my personality, but I kept on at my parents. I want to play. I want to play. I want to play. Let me play. And in the end, they go, oh, keep him quiet. He's pestering us. They let me play. And, you know, from that, from that age, age six, um, that was all, all that I wanted to do. I wanted to play tennis. And then you sort of, what you do is, is from starting from loving the sport to playing and someone who, like me, is very competitive, you just climb the ladder. So you want to be the best in your club. You want to be your best in your county. You want to be the best in your region. You want to be the best in the country. Um, and then, you know, of course, before you, before kind of you realise it, you're on that, you're having to make that decision that um, tennis is going to be your life. Tennis is what, what, what you want fully to commit to fully. So age 14, I had to make that decision. And going back to, as you said, guys, um, you know, when I was coming from uh, Liverpool, there were no indoor courts there. You know, there, there, was, there was actually an indoor court, indoor court next to a train track which I think was probably the first indoor court built in the Northwest region. That was in Liverpool, but that was torn down. It was, it was where I had my early years of coaching with a, with a, an old, old guy called Fred Bamford who coached a lot of the, the local players, but, but the nearest, the nearest indoor courts was Manchester. Yeah. So you can imagine, can you imagine my, my mum and dad taking me from picking me up from school? I think, I don't know, half past three or something, having to drive to Manchester for regional training I think was from about five o'clock to seven o'clock. Then you finish your regional training and then you get in the car and you drive home. And that's half past eight, right? 
that's yeah that's a lot of sacrifices you know you're not maybe having the right right uh food which what you probably should have you're tired for school the next day not that i really cared for school at that age because it was all i wanted to do was play sport so it was the only decision really for my to make i mean i made the decision i wanted to go to bisham abbey but when i look back now i think that bisham missed there was a there was an opportunity missed i think i don't think it was as good then as it was when you you were there kino ian barkley changed that massively what a coach yeah what a coach. um but i but what i gained going to bisham was it took the burden off my parents yeah and it made it easier for me yep. but I, I, you know, age 14, I was not developing certain aspects of my game that I should have been. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I was always going to be tall. I was always going to be tall and slow. I was always going to be a good server. I was always going to be someone who tried to play the net. So you'd figure, wouldn't you, at 14, 15, that that would be what you'd look to improve. But it wasn't always the case. You had the perfect courts at Bisham Abbey for that game style, though. <laughs> yeah, they did. But, they did, but you know, I, I look back and I think the, some of the drills I used to do at Bisham, on those, as you said, those quick courts, you used to do threes, right? So anyone that's, anyone that's familiar with threes will understand, but I'll just explain what the drill is. You have one person one end, you have two people at the, the other end. And if you're on your own, you basically go for 10 minutes and you go from one corner, you hit to one corner, and then you hit to the other corner. Well, it's all right. It's all right hitting cross court if you're in the right position. But why would you be playing on the quickest court there would ever be? On in defence, would you look to go back down the line? I mean, go go figure, right? I mean, but that was never. No one ever mentioned that to me at fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. So I, I'm not a fan of threes because of that. You know, I much prefer I much prefer the drills where it's two on the court, or if you are going to do. It's done on a slow call, yeah. and and it's not it's not one to one corner, one to the other. You got to learn where to put the ball yeah. in certain situations. You know, this would never this was this would never told to me at fourteen, fifteen, yeah, yeah. and it shouldn't be. I mean, for someone like Tim Hemman, who's the same age, he probably would have figured it out himself, yeah. even at fourteen when he three foot tall and skinny as you know skinnier than that pen. But his his mind was working, but. He, he's an exception. You know, most of us, we need to be told at that 14, 15, yeah. you know, where, what you do when you, what you do when you, in defense. Um, so, you know, those, those are the things that I think are so important at those, at those at the younger, younger ages, um, you know, learning how to play the sport. Yeah. And Tim, so you've touched on Tim, because I didn't know you guys were exactly the same age. That's a fascinating one. Did, did you boys think he was going to be good? Because he, 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 ranking-wise, he wasn't. But did you, did you pick up that he was good even at that age of 14? No. No. I had no idea. Because right. I had no idea about tennis. Yeah, yeah. So, so at 15, 16, I was looking at as a good tennis player. I had no idea. You know, I mean, I was, I was, told, I was told at 16 I wanted to be top 100. Right? I mean, that's the holy grail for any tennis player. Yeah. That's the, you know, I don't care who you are, you know, whether you win grand, grand slams or whether you're world number one, your initial goal is, is top 100, yeah. you know, and then when you get to top 100, it's top 50, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, uh, you know, I was, it was, it was sort of instilled 
I would say in us that these guys were unbelievable. You know, top 100, wow, these are like gods. You know, this is, this, if you're top 100, you're just real. So I, I had no idea at 15, 16. But now when I look back, you know, Tim was different. So yes, he wasn't developed. And yes, his game wasn't there. But his mind was working. And his mind's still working now. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a, lot, I'm a lot more stewed about the game now than I was at 14, 15. But I would never say that that was, that was a mistake on, for me. And that was never a mistake on the parents. That's just about, I think, having people around you that, that really do understand the sport. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Ian Barkley was the first, was the first person to, to say to me, listen, if, you're, if you have a volley below the height of the net, don't go into the open space. Back behind. Back behind. I'm okay, it was a joke, right? Back behind, mate. You know, if you've got a volley, if you've got a volley that you can go down, go into the open space. Because what do players love? You know, what do good athletes love? They love hitting passing shots on the run. Yeah. So just little things like that, little golden nuggets that it's amazing how you remember, you know, yeah. even 25 years later, they still stick in your mind. Massive. No, I, there's a, there's a, there's a, something I want to pick up on there as well. In terms of, it's actually what we were talking about a little bit earlier with Battle of the Brits. We were, because I was a little bit after you, you know, and obviously we have similar roots, you know, went to, went to Bisham, just missed you um, at Bisham. But like you say, it was the top 100 was, it was also, it was almost unattainable. You know, it was mm -hmm. on a pedestal. It was these players and, and, and definitely I was guilty and I've said this on a couple of podcasts I was guilty of setting a barrier setting barriers setting mm -hmm. ceilings whereas Dan Evans Andy Murray has done a great job of it as obviously a world one of the world's best Cameron Norrie's very normal <laughs> you know mm -hmm. very you know Kyle Edmonds story it, they, 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 they are just a little bit more relatable because yeah. even, even Tim, and I don't know Tim like you know Tim, Tim wasn't that attainable for me. He, mm. was, he, he kind of sat there, and I practiced with him maybe once. You know, the same with Greg, who obviously came over a little bit later from Canada. But there wasn't really a relatable player at that point, I think, for us. And, and that's what I just, I hope now in the UK, and again, we're talking about the men's side you know, that's not to say that the women's side isn't as important, but just who we've got on the podcast. Those guys, like the Drapers, the Jobs, they, they're so close to those guys. And it seems, it just seems much more manageable. And the same with the doubles. We saw it happen with the doubles. You know, I mean, just before I stopped playing, I was about 140 ATP. And I thought hundreds like, oh, that's like so far away. And then I stopped playing six months later. All these guys that I was duffing up were now top 100, you know, and it, it just the seal was broken, you know, and Louis Kai has been a big part of that. And then that seal was broken. And now almost anyone that serves all right, returns all right, volleys decent, that yeah. kind of gets molded into a top 100 player. And I think so much of that is, is in the mentality. Did, when, when you were that age, Barry, do you, do you think you believed that you belonged as a, as a, as a top 100 player? No, definitely not. No, it was my ultimate goal. Yeah. But I didn't, didn't believe. And, and you, you, there are experiences along the way that confirm that for me. But, yeah. you know, I was, I was starting to believe towards the end of my career. Um, I mean, it's ultimately why I stopped, because I felt that the harder I worked, the younger guys were better. And 
um, you know, so so what would it take me to get to to top hundred? Given the fact that I'd already had ten years on tour, I think it was extremely hard. That's why I sort of I, I lean towards I had gone to American University, so I'd gone to American University. I would have come at twenty one. Yeah. By the time I stopped at twenty eight, I wouldn't have been as battered mentally. I still would have had a few more years. Um, and and you know, doing the job I do now as commentating, and and what if I time again, the two the two things that I would do differently. Firstly, is experiment in practice. Yeah. Push the bar. Yeah. You know, don't don't. I, I I often use it with the players that I'm working with, and and I even use it in commentary. For me, it's like riding a bike. Once you learn to ride a bike, you never forget to look, ride a bike. Once you play, you learn to play tennis, you never forget to play tennis. Yeah. Even now where I cannot pick up a racket for three months, yeah. like I, still, I still know the disciplines of tennis. Yeah. So why, why, did, why did tennis players spend 30 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour or two hours, as I did, doing the same thing every day? To me, that doesn't. You're not going to. You're not going to improve. You're just going to. You're just going to. You're just going to keep at the same level because you're doing what you did the day before. And I actually re I read something or I heard something a, a couple of months ago that really stuck in my mind. Actually, and I thought it was great. Sangakara, the cricketer, the Sri Lankan cricketer. So what he did, uh, he turned himself into one of the greatest batsmen in the modern generation. And his hour, his hour session was his first ten or fifteen minutes would be to hone his technique. The last, the next 30 minutes would be to do something new. Yeah. Every day, something new. You know, develop a shot, work on something. And then the last 10 or 15 minutes, he'd go back to the basics. Yeah. So, you, you know, you're, it's positive reinforcement, but you're forever, you're forever pushing the boundaries. Yeah. So that would be, I think, one, one advice that I would always give. Yep. coaches, uh, younger players, um, and wish I'd done better. And yep. in commentary, I didn't realise actually how mentally strong I was as a player. Yep. I, because, because I, you know, and the, and the amount of matches you watch where, you know, there are, there are players who are fragile mentally. There are players who are incredibly strong, but some days they aren't mentally strong. Yep. But you kind of put yourself in a pigeonhole with rankings. Mm -hmm. Do you think, well... Top hundred are mentally stronger than the guys ranked two hundred, yeah. or guys ranked two hundred are mentally stronger than guys ranked four hundred, and guys ranked four hundred mentally stronger than eight. No, that's not necessarily the case. You know, a guy ranked fifty, okay, might I might have been mentally stronger than them, but they might have actually just been better tennis players. Yeah, but yeah. I think if I'd gone into the match believing I was mentally stronger, I think that would. I think that could have counted for a little bit more. Yep. Dan Evans is a, is, a, is a very realistic case. Okay, Dan thinks he's brilliant, right? Good on him. I think it's fantastic he has that self-belief. Now, he thinks he's great and he's able to back it up with substance. Yep. Then you've got a player. Very yeah, good. It's, 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 it's unbelievable to listen to that as well. And, you know, as we all know, being tennis players, I think tennis revolves around a lot of confidence, believing in yourself, being able to back it up, like you said, each day, um, having the courage and belief. And I, I suppose I have to ask it, and we're going, we're going to have to ask it during this podcast, but 
how was that mental strength when you were uh, pitching yourself against one of the best ever tennis players uh, on the planet, Pete Sampras, in, you know, in Wimbledon? How was that mental strength? And how, like, I mean, what a match that was, Barry. Could you, could you tell us about it? Yeah, so actually it's an interesting, it's quite a few subplots to the, to the story, actually, believe it or not. And we'll kind of start a couple of years before and I think this also, from what we've also talked, what we've talked about, gives you a little insight to me as a person and how I sort of evolved in terms of my belief. So I hit with Sampras quite a few years before. Um, I forget the year, um, even though I should know the year, having been a commentator. But Sampras played Ivanovic. Was it '97? Maybe was the final that everyone remembers as as the serving final when they felt they needed to do something different. Anyway. I, I warmed up with Sampras on the Saturday morning and the Sunday morning before the final because he wanted to hit with a left-hander. I mean, amazing, right? I mean, me hitting with Sampras, which was like, wow. Because I, I still would love to see Sampras play Djokovic on the centre court with his game style against you know, the greatest server in the world. For me, he is against the greatest return in the world. But I hit with Sampras and, you know, I was, I was over pretty intimidated, but you, you, you do your best. And then I hit with him. And then I think it was, I saw him again and he ignored me. And I thought, well, that's, that's understandable, right? I mean, he's got, he's got more important things to think about than saying hello to me. But then he's coach Paul Anacone, who ended up working for the LTA. I was in Toronto and he had to play, I think he had to play Lodra. So Paul came to me and said, would you hit with Pete before the match? So this would have been, I think this was 2000. So it was actually the year that I played the Olympics in, in Sydney. And so I hit with Sampras and then I saw him at the US Open a week later and he, and he ignored me, totally ignored me. And I thought, this is not right. You know, I'm, I, I have huge respect for Sampras and what he is, but I still think as a, you should say hello. So I went away saying, right, if I see him again tomorrow, I'm going to say, hey, Pete, how are you doing? And I did. And he said, hey, you know, how are you doing? And I think actually he was a little shy. You know, although we think someone who's able to hit second serve aces at 30-40, you know, in Grand Slam finals, you think he's going to be super common. But I think he's a little bit shy. So when I played him the following year, I think that ice actually helped guys. Yeah, because... Yeah. Although I had respect, I, I had started to believe more in that, and I'd, I'd had quite a lot of compliments from certain players and coaches, that you guys worked hard. And, and top players respect other players. The very best players respect other players if they are working as hard as they can and they compete, irrespective of their ranking. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I played Sampras that year... It was, it was obviously one of huge excitement for me because I was achieving what I what one of my goals, which was playing against the greatest player at the time on the biggest stage. Um, but it was almost like, it was also a case of, you know, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to compete and I'm going to show you that I'm a competitor, you know, that, that I'm, I'm going to put my game on the court. Um, so to be able, to, to, be able to, to do that and back it up, was a huge thrill, but obviously a lot of a lot was made of me listening to 
you know, you never walk alone um, on, my, on my headphones at the, at the end of the sets. But the two weeks before, I was an, I was an absolute wreck. I mean, I'm mentally, I was, I was really struggling. And my, one of the greatest coaches that I worked with, David Salmer, who's still very much part of the, the British game, after I lost at Queen's in qualifying to Todd Woodbridge, it was a terrible match. I said to Dave, I said, I'm just, you're giving me all this information and it's all right, but I need to process myself. I need to think for myself because at the end of the player, you can have the greatest people around you, but the player's got to be the one who makes decisions. So for two weeks before, I made all the decisions. Although, although I was in the greatest shape of my life, I was, I was physically the best, the best, best I was in. And tennis-wise, I had you know, all this knowledge. My game was improving. By figuring it out myself and preparing, preparing myself for, I think also gave me a little bit added strength. Um, and I started to do some work with, with a sports psychologist and, and that, you know, Gloria Budd, who was, who Kino worked with at, at Bisham, um, doing NLP, that, that all helped. So it was a sort of a build-up that it so happened that it was the right time for me to play Sampras. And, you know, there were occasions where I got a little bit lucky, but I was brave. And if you're brave and you compete, then I think good things come. Um, and that would always be my advice to, to any younger player who were more talented than me, just compete. And if you keep competing, good things will happen. Incredible. The, well, my, my subplot of that match is I did your stats. Oh, really? <laughs> Amazing. And not only did I do your stats, but I also met my wife that week. And, <laughs> and, and actually, I believe, I believe, remember, court one. Yeah. Match. Yeah. Um, I was actually flirting with my current wife uh, whilst, watching, whilst watching you and getting very excited. You know, obviously, we, we knew each other and it was, it was so exciting to see, you know, because two sets to love down and then the tie break in the third. And it was, the, the excitement was building and building. But yeah, but I was up in the gods, actually. Do, so maybe your statistics might have been off on that day because... Okay. Because, because uh, one, I was very excited watching you, but two... I was in the process of falling in love as well, so it's it, there's there's, a, there's another there's another. I, I was I was definitely bottom of the pile in that day. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was incredible. It was incredible. But that was so you would have been what twenty six ish then. Yeah. And yeah. then you said you stopped at twenty eight. Yeah, I stopped the following year. So right. I, that I was I was nearing the end. I mean, people might think, well, that's ridiculous. You played your you played your your your, your best ever match, and I did. I played my best ever match, but there comes a time when you, you know, I mean, obviously, clearly, I wasn't able to do that on a more consistent basis. But for me, playing, I think sometimes those bet, those really top guys, is a little easier because yeah. there is no, there's nothing, there's literally nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah. And, and I knew, I knew what I had to do. I mean, to play in Sampras, you've got to commit, right? You've got to hit aggressive serves. You've got to hit aggressive volleys. You've yeah. got to tee off on the returns. If you hit the back fence on the returns, it doesn't matter. Because for me, just putting in returns, I was going to lose every single point. Yeah. So it was just commit. Um, and, you know, it was, it, was, it was the best 
It was the best tiebreak I've ever played. I don't think I missed the first serve in the tiebreak. And then the adrenaline carried through to the fourth. And, you know, ten tennis players often talk about getting in the zone. I, I mean, it must be unbelievable for the top players to be in the zone almost every week. But it was an amazing experience to be in the zone for a couple of hours. Mm. Sounds unbelievable. Uh, I remember watching it when I was over here in Ireland. Before we do move on, what exactly does it feel like to face that Pete Sampras serve? What, what is it like? It's extraordinary. First serve and second serve. And, and again, I, I'd, made, I'd made the decision. I, I talked to Dave Samuel about it. You know, I was saying that um, I'd made all of my decisions. I was still in discussion with Dave. And we, we, we decided that the best way was, for me, was to guess. You know, I mean, if, if you're a Federer or you're Murray, you, you can hold your ground and your anticipation can, can pick up Andy Roddick's 150 mile an hour serve. But for me, I had to guess. And, and I decided that on break points or any big point, serving with Sampras serving on the left court, so the outside, I'd cover the middle. I'd just cover the middle. And the two break, the two break back points I had in the fifth, both first serves actually, he went, he went wide. But, I mean, you know, he's not, it wasn't the first time, it certainly wasn't the last time that he, he had, you know, he, he was able to out-second-guess his opponents. But I, I think sometimes when you know going into a match that those are your set patterns of play, then I think it's, it's, it's easier to keep, to keep a, a clearer mind. And the hardest, hardest part about the sport is you've got, you're making thousands of decisions in a match. You know, and, and you've got to make, you make thousands of decisions in a match under stress when it's your livelihood. And that's why my admiration for those top players, that they can look ice cool yeah, in important yeah. moments, is just extraordinary. No, it really is. And, and, and how did that change your life? Because you did, you went from being Barry Cowan, who people knew in the tennis yeah. world, to Barry Cowan, who I would imagine was on morning television, was on, you know into a completely different different space really yeah i mean it was wild um because i'm doing the job now because of that match uh, yeah. and that's why i i always very appreciative of the lta to start with because they gave me the chance to be able to develop my career i'm also appreciative of the people along my journey that helped me you know loads of coaches right from my first coaches through to my coaches when I was at Bishop Abbey through to my coaches when I was in the pro game um, because I wouldn't be sitting here now you know with having having played professionally for 10 years having played Davis Cup having played the Olympics um, having been able to 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 have that match with Sampras and then have now now be able to commentate on the sport for 19 years I mean wow I'm so lucky um, so so yeah it did it did kind of change it did change overnight. Hopefully, I haven't changed as a person. Um, I think that's really important. Um, some people might disagree. I don't know. But my, my, it's interesting you guys asked that. But my one, my one thing that I've, in, in the job I do now, is obviously it's difficult because we have to be, we, you know, we have to be positive. Yeah. But we also watch the match, be objective. And yeah. we have to try and, you know, put myself in the shoes what the viewers are thinking we ha i have to try and bring something maybe that is not obvious to the viewers yep. and and say what why is player x winning the match 
and what does player Y need to to improve to be better? Uh, and my 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 one thing that still holds same now as it did from day one is whether whatever I say, what I would say to that person face to face. Now they might disagree, might not think that that I'm the greatest commentator, but I don't think it should ever be a vehicle to to get off your frustrations. Um, so yeah, that that has always been my my mantra from day one. Yeah, no, you do a great job on that, Barry. I mean, I I um, was fortunate enough to kind of have a little dabble of commentating, which I absolutely loved back in 2012. Um, I was there for the for the Junior Grand Slams, and Jonathan Overend kind of pulled me and Josh Ward Hibbert in after he practiced with Rafa Nadal. Gave us a bit of an interview, said, Dan, sounded great. How do you fancy giving it a bit of a go, you know, commentary? So I actually did the French Open that year. And then I did the US Open. And I don't know if you were on the match. Petch, Mark Petchy definitely was, because I saw him straight after. But it was Feliciano Lopez against Andy Murray. Mm. And it was fourth round, and it was on the Louis Armstrong call, which Murray traditionally doesn't like. Yeah. And... I watched this match and first thing that came to mind for me was how amazing the overends and the Russell Fullers and these guys are, you know, that do the five mm. line, you know, how they paint the picture so incredibly well. But the second thing, I was trying to be so positive about Andy, but Andy was having one of these days mm. where he was just abusing everybody in sight. You know, like you, we've seen the Andy Murray gnarl when it gets going. And, and I did, I found it really challenging because there was definitely a thought in my head and I know what somebody like an Andy is like. You know, it's going out BBC Radio 5 Live. It doesn't take much for somebody to say, hey, Andy, Dan Keenan said this about you yesterday. You know, not that he probably cares so much about Dan Keenan, but again, you do have that, you do have that side of it. So how, how do you manage that on, on a day, on, on, on that sort of situation? It, you, you call out, I guess, the way that you feel it. Um, have you had any experiences of players maybe coming up to you and saying, hey, mate, why did you say that about me? Yeah, I mean, I, I had an incident with Andy, you know, a few years ago. And, and he called me out. But my, my way of dealing with it and, and, and my way of dealing with that was to have a word with Andy, yeah. personally, privately. Yeah. And, and what we did, you know, my way of dealing is not to, not to fight back on Twitter, yeah. not to back on social media um i explained i mean would i have done it differently would i have said it yes of course i would but i mean anyone you know listen we're 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 having to react live you know and that and that's the beauty that's I, I i love i also love the job i'm doing because you're accountable for every you're having to think in a split second yeah, you know, yeah. And so you've also got career right you got someone in your ear saying, "Move on in 20 minutes." Yes. You know, sometimes you might have someone change the mind in your ear. So yeah. you might have three people in your ear. Yeah. But that to me is live television. That's that's the buzz of it. And and if if I if I do say something that comes across in a way that maybe doesn't please people, it's not. It never has. You know, I I, I can't praise these players enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't praise any of these these champions enough. Yeah. Um, but you, I'm paid to give an opinion. Yes, yeah, so and, 
you know, I, I, I admit there are going to be times where people disagree. And, you know, and, and there was also, there was one incident which was quite, I'm not going to mention the name, but there was an article actually with a TV critic. And it's actually a funny story. And the, the throw line at the end was, well, what does Barry Cowan, how can Barry Cowan be critical of that, that particular match? He only did this. Yeah, yeah. And, and as it happened, I sat next to that person on the way home from the Aberdeen Cup. Do you remember the Aberdeen Cup? It was one of those one-off competitions. I think it was Scotland, was it Scotland versus England. And, I, and who do I sit next to on the plane home but that, but that journalist? <laughs> so I sort, of, I sort of sat next to them for 10 or 15 minutes. And then I sort of made small talk. I said, and you enjoy the weekend and et cetera, et cetera. And then we got, I brought up this article that they wrote and, and, I, and I sort of said to, tried to explain that you should respect everyone who has an opinion, right? Whether it be, whether it be the greatest tennis commentator in the world, the ones who are you know, high up in their sport, whether it be the greatest tennis player they've been, whether it be me, whether it be your parents, or whether it be Auntie Dot, who loves tennis at home, we all have opinions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it yeah. just so happens that I'm being paid for that opinion. Yeah. And, and you know what, he said, you know, you're right. Yeah, sorry, I'm really sorry. You're right, you know, everyone should have an opinion. Yeah. Um, so, that, so that was, you know, if I, if I ever do cross the line and I do get it wrong, it's, you, you know, I'm sorry, but... Yeah. It's live TV and, and maybe it comes out that you don't necessarily mean it to come out. But, you know, as I said from the beginning, what I say on air is what I would say to that person face to face. Yeah. And we don't want to have commentators that just wax lyrical about players all the time as well, because, you know, we do we do want to get those insights into into what's what people are feeling we we want to call out bad behavior to a degree we want to you know we we want to represent we want to represent the people that are watching with the with the relevant opinions as well you know and i think on that who i'd love to ask you who do you who's the best commentator who's like who's the the daddy or the or of, of all commentators in your opinion and it could be go it could be any sport actually and why yeah, I mean, I, I think, I actually think in terms of, just trying to think, I don't, I don't want to talk about tennis, because I don't yeah. think it's right you talk about your yeah. other players you work with. Um, I think some of the radio guys are amazing. Amazing. Um, amazing. I, I'm, I always have been a test match special. Yeah, yeah. I, I love my cricket. What they do is, is unique and and there are a lot of people that don't even like cricket. Yeah, yeah. But that's not special. Yeah. So I think what they bring is unique. I think in terms of I think in terms of television, sport, I think the the golf guys are great. Yeah. I think the golf guys do a great job. I, I think Michael Atherton is exceptional. Yeah. Really is exceptional. Ah, yeah. Because I think it's important that you've got to have a you've got to have a way of being into it you've also got to have a way of expressing your view yeah and and i and you, you know you 
you've got to be opinionated. I mean, yeah. right. I mean, you know, we can go from Roy Keane, and I came Keane. I mean, massively opinionated. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's not. He's not going to. You're not going to agree with pitching that Roy Keane. But you want to listen to him, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 his opinion. He's right on everything, but you know he's engaging, yeah, and, yeah. and you know you know you know that he is he's saying what it is from the, from the heart. I mean, two years ago he said he wouldn't pay to watch Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, obviously those words have come bite him. <laughs> but I guess that's what he thought at the time. Yeah, you can't and you can't nowadays. I saw someone on Twitter today. And it's it's moving sports, but hopefully people listening will will still understand and, and respect this point. And it was Paul Merson and somebody else, and they were basically Kevin De Bruyne had just been sold to Man City, mm. and they were like, "What a waste of money, De Bruyne! He's never going to be good enough. He was never good enough at Chelsea. He's this. He's that. Fifty million for De Bruyne. Like, like really, they really laid it on thick. And 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 I guess obviously the way it works nowadays, once you've said something, it's said, and it and it, and it takes five minutes for someone to throw it back in your face. You know. But, but I mean, what, what you're saying here now is is uh, like, like to just add is why why I always like to try and back up. Yeah. When I say something, I think that's really important. Yeah. Why? Why I. Th- they're not good. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're why they're not match instead yeah. of just saying they're no good and their behavior was rubbish and you know it's 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 there, there has to be a context behind it yeah um i mean i mean is there is there a sports commentator out there that, that hasn't said something that's come back to bite them yeah i mean of course everything everything you know there isn't one out there yeah Sure, that that has got everything right, um, but I think we are at times. It, you can say ninety nine great things, and you say that one thing that is slightly over the edge, and that's what people tend to remember, unfortunately. Yeah, and I have to also agree with you on the radio guys, and and it's how they and Test Match Special do it so well. You feel you're there. You 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 feel, you know, and I remember like. Overend, I've got a last, last quick story on Overend, but he, I was doing the Djokovic Ferrer semi final at US Open 2012 and 5 2 to Ferrer. And Overend had just painted such beautiful pictures of everything going on, and I just have to give a bit of an opinion every now and then. And then Overend turned to me and he said, um, I'm going to the toilet, I'm going to the toilet. And, he, and off he went to the toilet, which is fine. You know, I can fill that space of a, of a changeover, you know. So I'm filling the space of a changeover and, you know, trying to kind of give a little bit of an analysis of what's happened. And then all of a sudden, on the loudspeaker, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Flushing Meadows, not a cloud in the sky. Comes over the loudspeaker and it says, ladies and gentlemen, the match is suspended can everybody evacuate Flushing Meadows immediately? There's storms on the way, right? So this match, so this match goes from five two. I'm about to just talk about an overend. He'll be back in a minute, no problem. You know, he's my he's my security blanket. I don't know. He must have had a bad stomach because he was about 15 minutes. I'm sure he was, but there was no match to talk about. So now I was, I was in this position. Which uh, you know, which was quite good fun of of now filling this filling this space 
you know, and, and that was just, I mean, I probably did five or six matches. So I'm sure you've got countless, countless different times that kind of different things have gone wrong and, and you've, you've had to react. Mm. Um, but so much respect for what you guys do. I think it's, it's brilliant and a massive part of the sport. In terms of you being so close, Barry, last, last question before we move into, into the quick fire round, because you've been amazing with your time, is how have you seen the game change over, over the last, you know, 19 years? And, 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 this, mm. and the add-on question to that is where does it go next? Uh, great question. Uh, I think the game has changed uh, A for the better, I think also B for the worse. Uh, and, I, and I look at that and, and it's something that I've always actually continued to say in my commentary. You know, there's been, I think, we've got to be very careful to not follow the crowd. Yeah. And what I say by that is, is are we all going to be baseliners who hit aggressive first serves and look to melt forehands. Yeah. Now, I obviously understand there's a lot of people who've been very successful on both tours with that type of approach. But there has to be a way for serving volley tennis. Yeah. There has to be a way for a slice backhand. There has to be a way for players taking the ball early. There has to be a, another way to win. And, and it's been a bit of frustration for me when, when I hear, well, you can't volley. Why can't you serve and volley? Of course you can serve and volley. If you do it well and you, and you commit to it, it doesn't matter what surface, yeah. with what strings. I mean, obviously, strings have changed the sport massively because the polyester strings now, it's a lot easier to, to hit great shots. Better has shown the way, the way he's changed his game. Yeah. That you can come forward. But if you come forward with, with and you know how to volley, and you know where to put the volley, then of course you can have success. But I think a little bit of some of the modern generation is that they don't they don't practice their volleys enough. Yeah. They don't think they can volley. So they their coach might say, Come on, you gotta come in, you got you gotta approach. And then they get passed. I mean, Pat Rafter won two US Opens, right? Being passed 49 times in a row, but would come in the 50th time and he'd eventually win it and win the match because I'm exaggerating. But a great volleys have that mentality yeah. where baseliners have the mentality that, oh, well, if I come in and lose that point, then that's not the right way. Yeah. And, you know, again, go back to Dan. Dan's getting a lot of airtime tonight. But look, I mean, Dan's five foot nine. Yeah. And he comes in and he wants any and he volleys, but he's he is one of the few that come in with intent. And and I, I would hope that the, we see the game do, does go in, in in full circles. I'm not saying we're going to be seeing players serve and volley first and second serve, but I, I just at times I scratch my head when I look at players playing Djokovic, and and there have been great players that played Djokovic and they never serve and volley. And I'm just going, well, why would you serve and volley? Yes, he's a great returner. People might say, well, surely you don't want to come forward. He's a great returner, but he's a great returner. But you know where he's going to put the return. He's going to put the return within a foot of the baseline. Yeah, yeah. So. Come forward, more than likely you're gonna. More than likely, it's gonna be a volley down the middle. But you know what it does by coming forward, even if you lose the point, it puts a bit of seed of doubt in his mind. Absolutely. If Djokovic knows that you are gonna play the same point every single time, that's just that's just heaven for Djokovic because they're they're in a rhythm. So don't be predictable. That that would be um, the one thing that I. 
I would really like to see in the next 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 ten years or so. Um, I don't think traditionally. I don't think I don't think players second serve is a good as good now as it was because it doesn't have to be. You want the certain volleys had to hit accurate second serves, had to go close to the body. So I think the big next step actually is I think we're going to see players be even more aggressive with second serve returns. I think that's a, an obvious step. You know, maybe the shortest shortest ball of the rally is second serve. Yeah, good. And, and I have to ask as well on that from what you're saying on the serve and volley. So O'Shaughnessy again, he and I'm still not sold on this statistic. This is the one, and, and if you hear the podcast, I do ask him a lot about this. Is he said since data has been collected since 1991 that 47% of baseline points have been won and 65% of net points have been won. Mm -hmm. So now what I'm not totally 100% and he couldn't quite give me the answer is exactly the criteria of what a baseline point is and a net point which makes me think there's there's a little bit of deviation on that because it's not quite baseline to baseline yeah. is how is how we see it but that statistic does hold true that there's a high percentage of 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 serve and volley points won it's it's there it's still it's in the game right now it's w without any question you know that's that's the one thing that you can't question the serve volley percentage won over the last 10 20 30 years has never changed and it's always been round about 65% of points won, which completely backs up with what you're saying. So why aren't more people doing it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if I use Nadal as an example, I think he's a really good example. He, he arguably does one else, the closing volley. Yeah, amazing. But he's coming in on his terms. Yes. So when Nadal wins 90% points at the net, which he does, it's because he's got an unbelievable... Forehand that he's setting. Djokovic, I think Djokovic's greatest numbers when he dominated the sport a few years back, I think was 50% of the points. Okay. So anytime you're coming to the net, if you're if you can win 56% of the points at the net, that's a damn good ratio. Yeah. Uh, and so that comes comes back to it that it's it's a, it is a mentality of being able to stick. If that's your game, I mean, you know, listen. If you're, if you're, if you're a total baseliner, who who doesn't who doesn't necessarily like coming forward, doesn't need to come forward. I totally get it. But I, you know, you mentioned John Isner, as a good example. Unbelievable serve. Yeah. You know, what, what did you say? 95 percent service games won. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his return numbers have gone down. Yeah. If, if that had been Pete Sampras, Pete Sampras is going to the match saying. I'm going to home and serve six times a set. And do you know what? I'm going to swing six returning games a set. And if I, hit the, if, I, if I do hit the back fence, it doesn't matter. It's that one game. Yeah. So it's the mentality of just creating pressure. And, and when you've got a baseline, they like to hit balls, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. They love to hit balls. They love to get rhythm. So if you're an attacking player, just swing from the hip. Because even if they hold serve to love, and they're only hitting six, six shots in that game, that actually is not something they're necessarily comfortable with because then if you strike gold in one of those returning games, you might catch them on the back foot and you might catch them cold. No, no, absolutely. Very good. 
Barry, we're gonna, we're gonna. I'd love to go into more stuff, but it's, it's not fair on you, and it's also not fair on our listeners because it's gonna, it's gonna be a long podcast, and it's, it's been a brilliant one. You've, you've, you've spoken incredibly well on so many topics. You really have. You know, I'm excited to, to listen back. John really gonna, enjoyed it. John's gonna take you through. It's our, our. I did it. We did a podcast number thirty went out the other day. And everyone was abusing us on Twitter that we didn't do the quick fire round. So everyone likes the routines. They like the rhythm. So, so um, John's going to take you through a, a little quick fire round to finish a little bit lighter. Get um, a couple of opinions on that. Magic. Cool. And, um, before we went to the quick fire, Barry, unbelievable. It's been magic listening to you here on this podcast tonight. A big, big thank you before we went to this quick fire. Are you ready to go? Yeah, just say thank you very much, guys. I really enjoyed it. And it's always nice. I think that's what these, these podcasts work really well. It's always nice to, to listen to people's experiences. And it's also nice, you know, to speak to you guys this evening. So I think I'm ready. Can I pass on any or is that not allowed? Not allowed. No, not allowed, Barry. It's straight in here. It's quick fire. Our first one. I think I know this one, Dan. All right, here we go. Server return. Serve. ATP or Davis Cup? Grand Slam. Rafa or Roger? Both. Is US Open or no? US Open. Injury timeout or no? No. Warm up or no? Definitely no. Encore coaching or no? Definitely no. And one rule change that you would take in for tennis moving forward? Well, you've asked me about warm-up. That would be the one thing that I, I would love, uh, I'd love to scrap. And you've always also asked me that, that question. Um, oh, crap. You've got me. One rule change. Um, I think it would be no warm-up, actually. I think it'd be the one thing because I don't I don't get it in in this current era that we're living in when when you've got you're trying to catch people's imagine you know people's attention and and I look at golf what I love about golf is you step on the first tee and there's pressure straight away I think when you walk on a tennis there should be a buzz from a crowd which there is and then it goes flat for five or six minutes and then you start again I think you walk on the court the clock you have 30 seconds you can do what you want you can sit down you can do press-ups you can hit a couple of sirs whatever you want but you have to start within that 30 seconds that you walk on court class i love it barry kern you've been unbelievable yeah really enjoyed it guys Top, top man, Barry. Really appreciate your time. And, and honestly, that was, that was fantastic. So a big, big thank you from myself and John. And I'm sure everyone's going to love that. Thank you. A massive thank you to Barry for that. I have to say, do you know what I've absolutely loved doing about these podcasts? It's the different routes that tennis opens it really is an amazing vehicle to take people into so many different directions you know from from the sports psychologists to to the commentators to to the coaches 
to those that are running their own business. You know, we really do pick up amazing life skills through the sport of tennis. And I think it's really important us as coach and coaches and as parents that we are educating our, our youngsters on that as well. It's not just about the number at the end of your ranking. Um, so another great podcast. A big thank you to you all. Um, just to, to let you all know, the, the week of July the 13th, we are having Mental Health Awareness Week. Now that the platform is growing, and it's a big thank you to you guys, let's keep building that keep rating, reviewing, sharing these podcasts with people. Uh, we feel that we, we re- something that's very close to our heart is is mental health within sport. Um, and it's, it's a subject that hasn't been talked about enough. So we've got some fantastic guests lined up to talk through their stories and really, really bring it a little closer to home uh, for everybody to be aware of, of the realities of it. And, you know, I hope, you know, the, the candid guests that we're going to have will we'll help share that and, and I hope that it'll really help educate people that don't know and I hope it'll inspire people that are going through their own difficulties. So watch out for that. That'll be the week of July the 13th. Um, and until then, we've got a couple more great guests coming up later this week and next week. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. We're loving doing it. My name's Dan Keenan. My co-host, John McGann. We are Control the Controllables. <laughs>